Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10 this morning, and let's stand together. And I want us to pick up this text of Romans in verse 5. And we're going to read verse 5 through verse uh, through verse 17. But we're going to spend our time this morning focusing on verses 5 through 13. So let's read this text together. I pray that God will use it. I pray that he will use it to 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 instruct our hearts, instruct our souls, that he would establish us in Christ, that this would be for the good of our souls. Let's look at it. Paul writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. You can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are essential, eternal words of divine truth. And so as we open them up this morning, Father, our prayer is that you will unfold them to us. That, Lord, we wouldn't depend upon our own wisdom or our own um, human reasoning skills in order to understand this text, but that by your Spirit you might bring the truth home to each one of our hearts. That, Lord God, when we consider this text... We wouldn't do so in a reductionist kind of manner. We wouldn't do so in a way that makes a mockery of the gospel. But instead, Father God, we would understand this text in such a way that makes much of the gospel and much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you, Heavenly Father, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would purge for me that which is displeasing in your sight, that you would make me, Lord God, to speak your words after you today, to do it in such a way as to, that brings glory and praise and honor to you and focus and renown to you and nothing at all to me. And that, Lord God, makes much of Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that 
not only would you fill me with the Spirit of God, but that, Lord God, your Spirit would move in our midst and that you would teach us and that you would train us and that every heart in this congregation, Father God, you would arrest its attention right now and you would make everyone, Lord God, to hang upon your word, to hear everything, to desire to hear everything that you have to say from the youngest to the oldest. Father God, from the most brilliant to the most simple, that every one of us in this room would have our hearts engaged with the truth of the living God. You must make it so, Lord God. We can't do it. I can't do it. You've got to to, to draw our hearts out to you this morning. So I pray that you will. God, I pray that, that you would lead me to preach according to your spirit. You know, just that that, that I would be an instrument Father God, in your hands, that, that, that all of the preparation that I have done, Lord God, would, would, it would just, it would all be, you know, under, under your sovereign direction. Uh, that, that you would just have, that you would move in sovereign freedom in the preaching of your word and in the responding of hearts. So please exalt Christ in our eyes. Please exalt yourself in our eyes. Exalt your truth in our eyes. Make us nothing and make yourself everything, I pray. And I ask this in the holy and precious and the saving name of Christ. Amen. You know, beloved, I was preparing the sermon this week. I was thinking about this text. This is a text that for a lot of us is a very familiar text. I mean, we've heard these words before. We've heard, you know, the whole believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess that Jesus is Lord. We've heard all of those words before. And so for a lot of us, this is kind of second hat. Like we're going to be sitting here and you're going to be listening to this. But in your heart, you're saying to yourself, I've heard of all, I've heard all of this before. I thought that too. I thought that too as I was studying for this sermon. I thought, yeah, I, I'm really familiar with all this. I've heard all of this before. I've preached all this before. And then when I humbled myself before the Lord and I realized that I'm not as brilliant as I think I am, that's when this text gripped my heart in a way that I'm not sure it ever has before. I read this text and the truth is the gospel, beloved, is simple, but it's not simplistic. And I think the problem in our society, the problem in the world in which we live is that we have taken that which is simple. The problem with the modern church is we've taken that which is simple and we've made it simplistic. We've robbed it of its power and its mystery. We've robbed it of its glory and its, and its transforming might. By taking what is simple and reducing it to something simplistic. In this text that we're looking at this morning, Paul is continuing to make the case that there's only one exclusive way of salvation. And there's one exclusive Savior for Jews and for Gentiles, for every single human being. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you might imagine, in the religious pluralism of Paul's day, just like in our own, such a position, such a simple, straightforward, Christ-exalting gospel 
was often open to opposition and to mockery and to censorship. The truth is the gospel clearly preached was and is dismissed as unwelcoming, as unloving, as unenlightened, as immoral, even as emotional violence. You are hurting my feelings with this. And it's because in an atmosphere of plurality, there can be no absolute truth, right? I mean, that's the whole idea. In an absolute plurality, in an atmosphere of plurality, there, there is no absolute truth. You've got to make room for everybody's truth. There's no right or wrong. Everything really is just an issue of personal preference and, and what seems right or acceptable to the individual. And so there's no room for absolute universal truth. And I want you to think about this with me, this with me for a moment because it's really important, right? Truth regarding the very ground of reality. That there is a sovereign creator God who ordains all things, who is the ground of truth, who is the only provider of salvation. It has been reduced to the realm of myth and and personal belief and personal taste. And so-called science and human wisdom, unmoored from objective fact, has replaced God's revelation as the only, quote, reliable sources of truth. And divine revelation has been reduced instead to conjecture and personal speculation. And the result is a proliferation of these various religious beliefs, personal, you know, religious opinions, even atheism, but all of it labeled as my truth. And you can't assail it because it's my truth. It may not be your truth, but it's my truth. As if there are, you know, as many different versions of the truth as there are people in the world. Everybody gets to define truth according to their own desires. Facts become the victim of feelings and what seems best to the individual. And actual truth is the casualty. And in such a climate, here's what happens. Truth ceases to exist and instead it leads to a hodgepodge of various beliefs, oftentimes incoherent and irrational and illogical that are to be unquestionably accepted by all because there's no real truth to be found in the realm of, quote, spirituality. And Christianity gets reduced to a mere man-made religion like all the others. And rather than holding to the truth that Scripture clearly defines, rather than be bold for the truth of Scripture and what it says about God and about Christ, much of the church has retreated to a simplistic view of Scripture and a simplistic view of the Gospel. And so we reduce it to just believe in this name and just pray this prayer in this person's name and just ask this person into your heart. You don't really need to know anything about them. It's the mechanics that matter. Just do the mechanics and you'll be okay. It's simplistic. Christianity gets reduced to mere man-made religion like all the others. And yet, beloved, it is anything but. I want you to hear me when I say this to you. Beloved, Christianity is not just a religion. Any more than Gretchen is my baby mama and not my wife. 
No, I'm serious. I want you to hear me when I say that. Christianity is no more a religion any more than Gretchen is merely my baby mama and not my wife. To reduce Christianity to a religion, like all the other religions in the world, is to say Christianity is just a human construct. It's just an invention of fallen mankind because, beloved, that's what religion is. Religion is something that man creates in order to placate the questions and the longings and the confusion of his soul. What we call the doctrines of Christianity are not a religion. It's not a religion. It's the very ground and definition of reality. And we as Christians cannot surrender that position. We can't surrender that position. Christianity alone explains creation by divine fiat, right? It explains the uniqueness of man amongst all of the other, quote, animals of the world as created in the image of God, doesn't it? It alone explains our responsibility to obey our Creator. It alone accounts for the fall of mankind and the universal existence and consequences of sin. It alone accounts for the rightful wrath of God against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Christianity alone gives us the divine remedy to human rebellion and cosmic treason against God. Christianity alone describes sovereign election, the incarnation of the Son of God, His particular work of redemption to save His people, the effectual calling of sinners to salvation through faith in Christ, to, you know, the, the, the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the final judgment of unrepentant sinners and Satan and fallen angels, the existence of hell, the reality of heaven, the exaltation of Christ as Lord over all, and the consummation of God's kingdom. Christianity alone explains everything. Everything. The doctrines of Christianity are not merely religious notions. They're factual truth. They're not religious claims. They're statements of fact. And the very foundation and the basis of reality. Christianity is not just merely man's explanation of what he believes to, or what he perceives to be true in the realm of the spirit. It is divine revelation that defines the spiritual and the material world. We believe the testimony of scripture not because it sounds good to us. Because when we compared it with, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and all the other isms and schisms of the world that we think that one sounds best. We believe the truth. We believe Christianity because it is the truth. And we believe in truth because we know that God is a God of truth. And it's not that Christianity is a religion that is superior to all the others. It is not a mere religion. It is truth. And it is truth that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Him alone. And that is Paul's contention in this text this morning. This is a broadly sweeping statement by Paul. It's not just, hey, you know what? Jesus is a good idea for a certain group of people in the world. That's a good religion for you. That's one that, you know, fits your needs and your 
you know, social position and kind of your intellectual level and all that stuff. That's a good religion for you. You take that one. No. No. Paul's saying there's one, one way of salvation. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything else, no matter how appealing it may be to your fallen human flesh, is a complete lie. That's it. And he begins this morning by making a a divinely inspired, indisputable statement of fact. Look what he says in verse 5. But Moses writes about the religion that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. And in that text, God is commanding the nation of Israel to live according to his commandments in order that they would be distinctively different from all of the other nations around them. Namely, he talks about Egypt and the Canaanites. And in the context of Leviticus, God is telling the nation that, you know, if you keep God's law, you will enjoy my blessing. I will prosper you. I will take care of you. That they, that that they, they would, you know, Keep God, if they would keep God's law, he would bless them in a temporal sense. Now, here's what you got to see. That they, the nation, would not keep God's law perfectly is made evident by the fact that God also provided, along with the moral law, a system of sacrifices to deal with their sin, right? A system of sacrifices to deal with their sin and to point them to the Savior, to point them to God's Messiah who would come and perfectly keep the law and offer himself as the final sacrifice for sin. But the law was to be the pattern for living as God's people, right? Right? So here's what Paul does. And he can do this because he's an apostle. Paul takes this text and he uses it for his purpose, which is to prove that earning righteousness with God by keeping the law was never God's intent for his people. That was never God's intention. They couldn't do it, and neither can we. In other words, if righteousness before God could be attained by human effort, right? And the key word there being if, if. If it could actually be attained by human effort, then what it would require from us, every one of us, is complete and total obedience to the law in every fiber of our being, heart, motive, and action, right? Every single aspect of us. And we could never take a break. There could never be an off moment. You could never have a a moment of failure, a moment of transgression, because as soon as you did, you would forfeit eternal life forever, completely, never to get it back. Right? Right? It would require somebody that they, think about this now, begin life without sin, that he live his entire life without sin, and then that he end his life without sin. I can't even start a day like that. And I never end one like that, right? It's a pipe dream. It's manifestly impossible for fallen sinful man. First of all, you can't ever start at sinlessness. Like when you're, when you, when you are born, you are born a sinner, right? So there goes that. To think that we can keep God's law perfectly with every fiber of our being. To justify ourselves before God as being perfectly righteous. You know what that is? That is defiant delusion. There's no way you can. 
Righteousness with God, self-justification before the Holy God, that is not within our power, right? That is not within the power of fallen men. It never has been. You understand, like, like we've got to admit that. We live in a world where we try to eliminate every single possibility of failure, right? We, we, we live in a world where, like, we, we try to... Some people just can't do certain things. You know what I mean? Like we try to make everything level, that everybody can do anything they want to do, right? That it, listen, it doesn't matter how long, I know I'm old now, but when I was younger, it wouldn't have mattered how long I practiced. It wouldn't have mattered how many shots I took. It wouldn't have mattered how much time I spent in the gym. There was no way I was ever going to play in the NBA. Right? Wasn't going to happen. Right? Look at me. Not going to happen. There are things that are, that are categorically impossible for some people, right? What is categorically impossible for all people is making ourselves righteous by our own efforts. We can't do it. We cannot make ourselves righteous before the living God. We can't do it. It's not in our power and it never has been. That's been Paul's argument all along in Romans, hasn't it? Like he already told us about the law. It's not a problem with the law. He said the law in Romans 7 is holy and the commandment is holy and it's righteous and it's good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is who? Us. It's us. And therefore, he says, by no works of the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. But... Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? Salvation is found in no place except Christ. It's found nowhere else but in Christ. All human attempts at earning righteousness with God are are absolutely in vain. Righteousness must be through faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us? Let me tell you what that means. Before we ever get into defining what it means to believe or to confess, what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. Here's what it means in the broadest term. That is the death knell for every other religion in the world. You understand? It's the death knell. Because here's the deal. There is truth, Christianity, and then there's religion. And every religion without exception, no matter what it is called, no matter what title it has, it all says the same thing. It says, do this thing, or keep these rules, or practice these rituals, or do these works, or perform in this way, and God will accept you. You must do it. You can earn it. You can do it. No, you can't. Every human religion is rooted in a misplaced and an illegitimate human pride that thinks it can do something in its own strength that it can never do. Can never do. And they're all wrong. Righteousness can only be had through faith in and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't have to go looking for something better than what's already been revealed to you. And that, honestly, is the point of what Paul says next. Look here. He quotes loosely from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. And these are probably the most difficult few sentences in this text to understand. But look what he says. He says, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what in the world is Paul saying here? Because that's a little confusing, isn't it? Isn't it? Who, when you read that at first, you're like, I'm not sure I know what that means. Right? Of course. This is very weird. Right? It's kind of strange in the text. But here's what's going on. In fact, let me read to you the original quotation from Deuteronomy. What's going on in this original quotation is that Moses is speaking to the second generation of Israelites. Remember the first generation that rebelled against them in the wilderness. They're all dead now. And now he's speaking to the second generation of Israelites that were to learn the lessons from the guys that died before them. And, and the second generation that is being ready to enter into the promised land. And so he says to him these words. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, well, who will go over the sea for us and bring us, bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, first thing we notice is Paul's quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 30 is pretty loose, isn't it? It's not exact. It's a little loose. So what's going on here is he's not quoting it exactly, but what he is doing is he's using the words of Moses, okay? He's using the words of Moses regarding the law as a point of comparison to the gospel. Now follow with me. Here's what he's getting at. Paul is saying, look, the clarity of the revelation of the law and the clarity of, 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 of the gospel, they are both, they're both really clear. He's, he's comparing, he's saying, the clarity of the revelation of God really in the law prefigures the clarity of the revelation of the gospel. In other words, the gospel's not hard to understand. The law wasn't hard to understand, neither is the gospel. It's not hard to understand, it's pretty straightforward. When Moses gave Israel the law, which was to guide them as, as, the peop, as his people, they didn't need, after they heard what he had to say, it wasn't like, well, I don't understand what he's saying. We need to send somebody up to heaven to find out what God was trying to tell us, right? No. They didn't need to send a messenger to heaven to learn how they were to live before God, nor did they need to like send you know, over the sea to distant lands, to pagans is the idea here, to find out how to honor God. Moses had told them. It was very clear. In other words, there was no need to add to what had been delivered to them by God through Moses. Through Moses, God had taught them everything with respect to worship and service and obedience in the fullest and the clearest and the most forthright manner. And the truth was right there before them. It was right there. The idea is it's so close. It was in your mouth and it's in your heart. If you will just receive it, it's right there for you. That's the idea. That's what he's getting at, okay? And in a like manner, Paul's saying, listen, this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it is that somebody is saved, it has been brought near to you through the preaching of the person and the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's not anything to be added to it. You know the way of salvation if you've heard the gospel. It's not hard to understand. 
You know the way of salvation. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart if you'll just receive it. It doesn't need any embellishment. It doesn't need any addition. It doesn't need any, like, you know, refining. It's all right there for you. It doesn't need human help. Just hear it and receive it. That's the idea here. Nothing, nothing can be any more evident when you hear the gospel than that we cannot merit salvation with God. We can't add anything to what God has already provided. And you know what? We don't need to because God has done it all. Salvation is not about some great feat you can accomplish. It's not about some remarkable thing that you can orchestrate for your deliverance. It's not about doing something great for God, attempting something great for God, doing this thing that makes you stand out from everybody else and not, quote, wasting your life being just a normal, obedient Christian. There's no way to, like, cling, to to lay hold of salvation in some new way. In fact, he says, what are you going to do? Don't say in your heart, will you ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Like, He's already come into this world. You don't need to go into heaven and search for a redeemer. He's already come. He's clothed himself with human flesh, without sin, accomplished everything necessary for salvation, fulfilled the law on your behalf, suffered the wrath your sins deserve, died to save believing sinners and give them the righteousness by which they can stand before God. You don't need to ascend into heaven. He's already come. You're going to descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead? Look, God's already done that. He's already raised him up from the dead. And he's seated him at his right hand from which he intercedes for us. And from where he exerts his sovereign authority to redeem every last believing sinner throughout the ages. You don't need to look anywhere else to be saved. You don't need to look to the halls of academia. Praise God. You want to talk about a bunch of educated, ignorant people? You don't need to look to the philosophers and the pundits of our day. You don't need to look to the corridors of earthly power or the elite circles of society or to some mystical or spiritual experience or some conference or retreat here or there. All of them are faulty substitutes. All you have to do is look to Christ. In fact, I love the way that John Stott says it. He says, Storming the ramparts of heaven and potholing in Hades in search of Christ are equally unnecessary. For Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible to faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. Now that's the plain statement of the gospel. But you know what? It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit through the truth of the gospel that will convince anybody of that truth. Because by nature, we are all inveterate self-justifiers. We all want to have some hand in our redemption. We all want to be able to take some credit for our being saved. Isn't that true? It is. There's nothing left for us to do but believe, but receive Christ. Nothing left for us to do but believe the gospel. It's right there for the taking by faith. The word of faith, he says, that we proclaim. And then Paul describes the very heart of the gospel. Here it is, man. You want to know the gospel? Here it is in two verses. Look at it. After telling us that the gospel is right there for the taking, this is what he says. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, 
Not, it could be that at the end of things, you'll be counted as saved. No, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right? How are you saved? Believe and confess. Confess and believe. Paul is using those two words together, beloved, to express the fullness of what it means to receive Jesus Christ. The fullness of what it means to truly receive Christ and then so be saved. We might say that faith is the fruit or is, is the root and that confession is the fruit, but they are both essential. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Confession and belief. Belief and confession, they go together because both those words have important meaning. Okay? They have vital meaning. The word believe means to trust in. It means to rely upon or to commit to or to submit to or to surrender to or to have faith in. That's what it means to believe. It is a multifaceted word. It's not just an intellectual understanding of something. It is an action word and it indicates a decisive choice to believe one thing and not another. And the word confess is a word that means to make a solemn statement of faith. To make a solemn statement of faith. To express one's open allegiance to someone. To openly embrace something. Or to say the same thing as. Let me say it all again. It means to make a solemn statement of faith. Or to express one's open allegiance or to openly embrace something or to say the same thing as in other words in other words it involves content it involves actual definitions of truth it actually involves something to confess something doesn't mean that it's an idea that has originated with you Right? It's to say the same thing as, meaning, you didn't come up with this. It's a, it, it is not something that originated with you, but rather that you are in agreement with what has already been revealed, the truth that has already been revealed, in this case, revealed by God. Now, beloved, that's important. And again, I want to emphasize why. To believe and confess suggests that there is real and essential content to the gospel. Why is that important? Here's why that is important. Some people, some people, and not all of them nefariously, but some people reduce the gospel to absurdity by having people confess faith in a Jesus that has no content. As long as they pray and confess the name, quote, Jesus, unquote, as if it's some magical word, and they believe in an undefined Christ, then they are saved. And they do that as an effort to produce numbers. Numbers of people that have confessed their faith in Christ. A faith that is contentless because they don't know who He is. It takes more than 10 seconds to explain who Jesus is. 
As long as you get the name right, you're good. But is that what Paul is saying here? Do you really think that's what Paul is saying here? Because if, if that were the case, I would submit to you that the whole of Romans and this text in particular, as well as, as well as all of the other letters in which he takes pains to define Jesus Christ in concrete terms, would not only be unnecessary, but they are a gigantic waste of time. Moreover, what they do, what they would do is introduce unwelcome and unneeded barriers and stumbling blocks to salvation. Right? No, listen. The only Jesus who actually saves is the Jesus who is described and witnessed to in Scripture. There is content to the true biblical Christ. First of all, Paul says he's Lord. He is Lord. Let's trace that together. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know what that was? That was the bedrock confession of the early church. It was the very confession for which people lost their lives in the early church. And it still rings true today. James Boyce says, not only was this the first essential element of gospel proclamation, as well as the first Christian confession, it was also a confession of their faith for which believers of the first Christian centuries were willing to die. So it can't be meaningless. It's got to mean something. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was well known to the Christian community of the first century, the word kyrios, which is translated, the Greek word that is translated as Lord, that was the word that was used to translate the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And using that word to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, the early church was saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the Son, God the Son. He is the second member of the Godhead. He's the creator and orderer of everything. This Jesus who walked among us in in, in human flesh, he's the sustainer of all things. He is the, the, the sovereign king. He is the God of the law and of the covenants. He's the God who has come to us personally, the God who has acted to save us, the God who commands us as master and ruler. He's the divine judge to whom all must give an account. He is the one who speaks divine authoritative truth. He is the one who's the great high priest, the one who rules over this earth and over an eternal kingdom. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess he is fully God. He is the great I am. That's who he is. He's not just a guy. He's God. He's God. Commander of all creation. All creatures great and small. To confess Jesus is Lord, beloved, is to distinguish Him and set Him apart from all other would-be gods of this world. He's no figment of the imagination. He's no mere man. He's not just a human example. He's not just some religious guru. He's none, listen to me, he's none of the million reductionist descriptions that infest the minds of mankind. He is almighty God, King of kings and Lord of lords. You've got to know who he is in order to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not an empty statement, Right? It's not. It is pregnant with truth. 
biblical truth. You don't just skirt over the Godhead of Christ. You don't just get past it fast. You don't just, you know, refuse to describe Him in terms, God terms, God-defining terms of Scripture. To confess Jesus as Lord is to confess like Paul. Look, he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. And for us, uh, I'm sorry, one God, the Father, from whom all thing, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to fall on your face like the Apostle Thomas, the doubter, unbelieving Thomas, and confess of Christ, my Lord and my God. That's the essential confession. Jesus is Lord. And I want you to see this. It's very personal in nature, isn't it? It's not just an agreement with a doctrinal position that Jesus is Lord. It's a, it's personal in nation. Look what nature, look what Paul says. If you confess, right? If you confess, not if the church confesses. If it's, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess, look, you know what? I am not Lord and neither is anybody else. And I have spent a lot of time being my own God and my own Lord, and I was an utter fool to do so. I am not the Lord. In fact, to say that Christ is Lord excludes everybody else, and it identifies Him as the only one to whom you give allegiance and honor. The one whom you serve. The one to whom you are merely a bondservant. He's everything. Man, I am nothing. He is everything, and I am nothing. That's what it is. You gotta begin. I mean, there's a, the, the heart of, 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 of true salvation begins with confessing, with knowing, with believing and saying, Jesus is Lord. He is God. What He says is true. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. And not only must you confess that Jesus is Lord, you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. What does that mean exactly when he just says, you know, that he has raised him from the dead? Is that it? No, it, here's what you got to remember. It's apostolic shorthand. Wherever you see the, the, the resurrection as the focal point in Scripture, okay, what's implied there is all of what Christ did to redeem his people. It's apostolic shorthand for the entire redemptive work of Christ. In other words, Paul is telling us that we've got to believe that, that, that this holy God, the Lord, took on human flesh and entered this world for a purpose, right? That we had ruined ourselves. By, like there's a reason he died and it wasn't just for kicks. We had ruined ourselves by our sin. We had made ourselves utterly unrighteous and guilty before God. We'd earned for ourselves his eternal wrath. And so God became flesh, this sovereign Lord and ruler of all things. Christ the Son entered into our fallen world as one of us. And he lived a life of obedience for the sake of sinners. And he earned for us the righteousness that we need with God and suffered then the penalty of our sins in our place on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God in our place and satisfied his justice so that we could be forgiven of 
our sins. He had to take on flesh to do that because God can't die. He had to take on human flesh so that he could die as a man in our place. And then he rose on the third day, was raised on the third day by God Almighty to prove the sufficiency and the divine approval of his sacrifice and to ultimately authenticate that Jesus Christ on the cross paid in full the sin debt of his people, that he actually accomplished salvation for all who believe in him. That's the idea, that he paid for every sin, that, that, that he gives his righteousness to all who believe. That is what we are called to believe. Not just that Jesus loves me and he died for me. Why did he die for me? Why did he rise from the dead? What am I believing that he did? That's the gospel. What did he do for me? That's what we must believe if we would be saved. We must trust in, rely upon, commit to, submit to, surrender to, believe this truth. And I want you to notice what Paul does here because it's important. He makes a big deal about the heart, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Look at it. Look what he says here. Again, if you confess with your mouth, but you believe in your heart. For with the heart, one believes. What's the big deal about the heart? Why the emphasis on the heart here in verse 9 and then in verse 10? Why does he bring that up? It's because, beloved, as the Scripture describes the heart, it is the seat not only of the understanding, of the mind, of intellectual understanding, but it is the seat of the emotions and of the will. Real faith. Real believing in Jesus is not just a mental transaction that affects you in no other way. A mental acquiescence to some facts. It doesn't mean, believing doesn't doesn't mean that you just merely ascribe to some doctrinal statement. And there's nothing magical about saying that Jesus is Lord. And there's nothing saving about mere mental assent to the truth. To believe is a commitment of everything you are represented by your heart to Christ as Savior and as Lord. It is personal. Personal. As Spurgeon says, our faith. This is what he says here. Our faith must be a hearty, honest, sincere persuasion of the truth, which we profess to believe. If I hold certain doctrines merely as having some respect to some other people, but not as having any reference to me, and if I hold them so that they do not in any degree influence my character and touch my heart, listen to what he says, then I hold them falsely. I turn the truth of God into a lie, and that faith can never save my soul. True religion is more than notion. Something must be known and felt. And faith is something more than acceptance of a sound creed. It is believing with the heart. Makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense with the whole confessing thing because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. John Calvin said the seed of, the, a seed of faith it deserves to be observed is not in the brain. It's not in the brain. But the heart. Not that I wish to enter into any dispute concerning the part of the body which is the seed of faith. 
But since the word heart generally means a serious, sincere, ardent affection, I do desire to show the confidence of faith to be a firm, efficacious, and operative principle. And all the emotions and the feelings of the soul. In all of the emotions and the feelings of the soul. And not a mere naked notion of the head. Faith is an exceedingly personal thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the whole person. It's not a matter of intellectual assent. It's committing your eternal destiny totally to Christ and not on any works, not to any works of your own fallen flesh. The faith that saves is a faith that commits all that we are to all that Christ is, has done, and will do. All that He is. That's what Paul is getting at. It's a robust thing. And the scriptural description of faith. Let me say it like this. The contemporary definition of faith falls exceedingly short of the biblical one. In so many churches. And in so many hearts. Maybe even some in this room. Paul says with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. With the heart. With everything that you are. You believe and you keep on believing in Christ. That, that word believes there in verse, in verse 10. That's, that's, that's a present active participle. It is the idea of living, of a living and a lasting faith. That you believe and you keep on believing and you keep on believing and you keep on believing and you never stop believing. And you're justified. You're declared in an instant to be not guilty and to be righteous before God in Christ. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ in an instant. And that covering is eternal. And with a mouth you confess. You openly declare your allegiance to Christ as Lord and you are saved. You are saved from what? You're saved from the everlasting wrath of God. You're saved from the judgment to come. You're saved from the just punishment that your sin deserves. You're saved from the second death. You're saved from hell. But ultimately, you know what you are? You are saved from God Himself. God saved you from Himself. You believe and you confess. And what Paul means us to see is that faith in Christ and the open confession of Him is all of one fabric. Are you seeing that? It's all of one fabric. In other words, you don't have one without the other. That's what he's saying. They're essentially linked. In fact, Robert Haldane puts it like this. He says, faith is necessary to obtain the gift of righteousness. Confession is necessary to prove that the gift has been received. If a man does not confess Christ at the hazard of life and character, property, you know, and property and liberty and everything dear to him, he has not the faith of Christ. In saying then that confession is made unto salvation, the apostle does not mean that it is the cause of salvation or that without it the title of salvation is incomplete. When a man believes in his heart, he's justified. But, but, confession of Christ is the effect of faith. And it will be the evidence of it on the first day and on the last. 
Faith which interests the sinner in the righteousness of Christ is manifested by the confession of his name in the midst of enemies or in the face of danger. Now, when you hear that description, right, of saving faith in Christ, when you hear that, you realize that there are many species of spurious faith and vain confession that infest humanity, aren't there? In fact, in the parable of the soils, when we read that, you recognize that only one of the four is actually saved, right? Right? When Jesus gives the, the parable of the soils, only one of those hearers is truly saved, right? But Jesus describes for us how some appeared to have faith, but when tribulation or persecution arose on account of the word... Immediately, they fell away. Or there were some who appeared to have faith, and then the cares of the world world, and the deceitfulness of riches choked that word, and it proved unfruitful. And why am I telling you that? Because I love you and I care for your soul. What is the quality of your faith? What is the content of your faith? What are you really believing? That I give it my best and Jesus makes up the rest? Or nothing in my hands I bring? Simply to the cross, simply to Christ do I cling. If you find no fruit in your life, don't be the person that argues that you're the exception to Scripture. Because they don't exist. Instead, repent. And really believe. Repent and really believe. Paul is saying, if you would receive the salvation that God offers, if you would be saved, then unashamedly confess that Jesus is Lord and believe and keep on believing that He lived and was crucified and was raised from the dead for you so that you would be forgiven, so that you would be made righteous, so that you would be saved. Believe in what Christ has done for you. Commit yourself to Him. Rely on Him. Trust in Him with all your heart. Confess your allegiance to Him openly and unashamedly. It's all of the same fabric. Saving faith will always lead to true confession. How? How do I, how does someone confess their faith in Christ? We just walk around saying Jesus is Lord, Jesus is, oh no. I mean, you can. You confess Christ is Lord through public worship, don't you? When you say, Christ, you have primacy over my Sunday mornings. Nothing else. You do. I mean, you have primacy over my entire life. But you especially have primacy on the day, on the Lord's day. Because it's, after all, the Lord's day. You do it through association with God's people. You do it, you know... When you have the opportunity among family and friends, in the way that you conduct your life, in the things that you speak, and and the things that you say, in trial and in temptation, through testimony to the world, you do it through baptism and through taking in the Lord's Supper. 
partaking of the Lord's Supper. You do it through preaching the gospel. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, there may be some people that because you must confess Jesus is Lord, the only way they will do it is if God make them a preacher. Maybe. It's all centered on Christ. All of it. And the promise is this. In verse 11, look at it. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Won't be ashamed. Right? Paul is repeating the same refrain from Isaiah that he's already stated in verse 33. Why is he doing that? It's because we need to hear this. It's to press on the point that faith in Christ never disappoints. There will never be anybody on their deathbed who is truly trusted in Christ who will say, man, I'm really, I wish I hadn't have done that so soon. Never. It never leads to shame. You know why? Because Christ has borne our shame away at the cross. Think about this. There is no need for us to shrink away from God's presence. Honor Him, reverence Him, be in awe of Him because of His glory and His majesty and His, and His, and His, and His, and His might and all of those things? Absolutely. But there will never be a reason, reason for us to shrink back from the holy presence of God because, praise God, if we're in Christ, our guilt and our shame has been removed by the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can say with confidence, everything that once stood between me and the holy God, all my sin, all my rebellion, all my guilt, All my shame has been forever removed as far as the east is from the west. And I am fully accepted in Christ before the throne of the living God. Amen. Period. Such is the power of the gospel. The true gospel. The whole gospel. The gospel that centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul emphasizes again. This gospel is the only way of salvation for every person. He says, he definitively says this in verses 12 through 13. Look at it. He says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He emphasizes again. When it comes to salvation which is to be had only in Christ. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. He's already said that back in Romans chapter 3. You remember when he said there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, right? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And now he says it again. He presses the point home. There's no difference. There's no distinction among men. There's not. Because we're all shut up under sin and we need a Savior. And Christ is the only one that is that Savior because He's the only one who is Lord. Lord of all. And it's the same gospel that saves everyone who is saved. In other words, there is no white gospel and a black gospel. There is no gospel for men and gospel for women. There's no American gospel. There's no African gospel. There's no Jewish gospel. There's no European or Asian gospel. And there is no ethnic specific savior. 
There's no gospel for the outwardly moral and one for the immoral. There's not one for the rich and one for the poor. There's not one for the oppressor and one for the victim. There's not one for the goody two-shoes and one for, you know, the overtly pagan. There's not one for the intellectual and one for the idiot. There's not one for the privileged and one for the underprivileged. Because what makes for distinctions among men are of zero consequence before God. They're of zero consequence before God. God's not a respecter of persons. And why? Because whatever else we may be, what we all are is sinners. Every distinction among men is leveled at the cross. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says it, he says, The gospel is open to all. The respectable sinner has no more claim on it than the worst. Amen. The gospel is for anyone and everyone. It's freely offered to everyone. There's one Savior. There's one Lord. The same Lord of all, Jesus Christ. There's one gospel for all who call upon the name of the Lord and the same riches of grace that He abundantly bestows generously and gladly for all who call on Him. And what an abundance of riches they are. Love and forgiveness and, I mean, reconciliation and cleansing and redemption and restoration and kindness and adoption, inheritance, truth, wisdom, the knowledge of God, eternal life, the life of God. Look, I could go on and on. The fullness of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. The treasures of Christ are inexhaustible and they're unsearchable and they're had only in the gospel. They're had only in Him. And they're for everybody. Everybody who will call upon the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting from uh, from Joel chapter 2 verse 32, which promises this, that despite the impending day of the Lord, when there will be judgment and calamity and Christ returns in all of his glory and judges the recalcitrant and God rejecting sinners and takes his people to himself, that in the, in the, in the, in the context of that, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But let's make sure we understand what that means, because that is a verse that has often been ripped from its context to make it say what it does not say. It takes a literal, wooden understanding of these words. And if you take these words literally and in a wooden manner, you miss the whole point. There's meaning to this. That word call doesn't just mean to say a word. Like like you're calling on your waitress. Hey, Dora, I need a little more coffee. The word call means to cry out from the heart. It means to appeal to someone to save you and rescue you. It's a call of somebody that sees the situation in which he is, in circumstances from which he cannot deliver himself, hopeless as it regards his own power, helpless with nothing to rely on to rescue himself. It's to look to another for what you cannot do, but you desperately need. That word call 
in this context means a cry of desperation made to the only one who can rescue the sinner from his well-deserved and well-earned fate. It's not just some light thing. It's to call on the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. The name of the Lord is not just his name, Jesus Christ. Like just as long as you get the name in there, right? The name of the Lord refers to him in his totality. That's what that means. To call upon the name of someone in Scripture is not just to say their title. It's to call upon them in the fullness of who they are, in the way that Scripture offers him as it, as it regards Christ, who he is and what he has done. That's what the phrase name of the Lord means. It's to call on the name of the Lord and cry out to him to save you because he alone can save based upon who you know him to be, the name of the Lord. And there's no formula and there's no specific prayer to pray. And there's no magic words to repeat after the pastor. You call upon his name. You call upon the name of the Lord. You believe that he can save you. You believe in what he's done. And you will be saved. The gospel is simple. It's not simplistic. But it is simple. Beloved, there are many religions. There are many religions. There's one truth. There are a multitude of man-made systems and religious schemes and irrational and contradictory and incoherent religious opinions. There are a number of false gospels and false Christs that will lead a multitude to perdition. But there is only one eternal truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. I want to close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. It gets right to the heart. He said, Christ is all in the entire work of salvation. He's all. No man helped him. And when he hung upon that accursed tree, Calvary, when his precious hands were pierced, When from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed, mingled down, there was nobody to help him. He was all in the work of salvation. And my friends, if any of you shall be saved, it must be by Christ alone. There must be no patchwork. Christ did it all and will not be helped in the matter. Christ will not allow you, as some will say, to do what you can and leave Him to make up the rest. What can you do that is not sinful? Wow. Christ has done all for us. The work of redemption is all finished. Christ 
planned it all and worked out all. And we therefore preach a full salvation through Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, though you might be the worst of sinners, you, though you may think yourself the best of sinners until God humble you, you, though you have often halted at faith, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, if we were to attempt to create a way of redemption and salvation for ourselves, Lord God, we would horrifically fail. We would horrifically fail because we would put ourselves as the hero of the story. We would make ourselves the one who somehow accomplished great things in order to affect our redemption. And the truth is, Lord God, there's nothing we can do. Nothing most humbling thing the most difficult thing perhaps to hear about the gospel is that we've made ourselves worthless and that we have made ourselves enemies and rebels against you and that we have earned for ourselves eternal destruction and damnation and there's no way for us to fix that there's no way to paper that over There's no way for us to make amends. There's no way for any of us to be able to do enough good that somehow counterbalances all the bad. Father, I praise and and bless you because you didn't, you did not just leave us all in a place, in the place of condemnation and wretchedness and spiritual pollution. You didn't just leave us there and say, well, you had your chance. I thank you, Lord God, that you're a God of incredible mercy and grace, of remarkable kindness to rebels, of remarkable restraint And I praise and thank you, Lord God, that you orchestrated the only means by which sinners could be saved and you remain just and holy. Even when it cost your only begotten beloved son in order to accomplish such a salvation, you did not keep him back. And because of everything that Jesus has done, those of us who are in Christ, we stand before you, Father, saved. We stand before you justified. We stand before you eternally forgiven by faith alone, which is the very gift of God and not by any human work so we can't boast. And we confess that Jesus is Lord not emptily, not without any content, and not just once like it's the ses- like you know like it's the word sesame that opens up the door. 
with our lives, with our lips, we confess that Jesus is Lord. By the Holy Spirit, we do that. Because our faith is real, we do that. I pray for all of us in this room this morning, Father, that are in Christ by faith, that you would help us this morning to realize what an incredible gift that truly is. How remarkable it is that what Christ has done for us cancels and redeems every wretched thing, thought, motive, and action we have ever done, had. It's remarkable. And let that bring forth from our hearts worship. And Father, for those this morning who are in this room and they've heard what it means to really trust in Christ and the words that Paul uses here, important words, vital words, faith and confession and heart. God, if they're here and know that they have not really place their full trust trust in Christ. I pray that this morning they would do just that. They would confess Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts and that you justify and you'd save them. How foolish are we to think that we can do anything to make ourselves acceptable in your eyes. How grateful we are that you've done it all. So move in our hearts this morning, Lord God, as we consider what we've heard today. And draw out our hearts in the way that you would have all of us to respond. And thank you, Lord, for your grace. And thank you for your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.